Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. We're so excited to have author Sarah Summers on this episode. For nearly 50 years, she suffered from untreated food addiction. She wrote Saving Sarah to provide readers with an inside view of a food addict's mind, showcasing her experiences with obsessive cravings, compulsivity, and powerlessness regarding food. She hopes this book will not only help those still suffering with the disease of food addiction, but also educate loved ones on the progression of the disease in order to promote life-saving conversations with those still suffering. Today, we're mixing it up a little, and Sarah is going to read a selection from her book that she felt our listeners could relate to. She then shares how even after she's introduced to the solution that will eventually end up saving her life, the sheer strength of her addiction didn't allow her to accept her disease. 26 more years pass until she finally finds her way back to that abstinent solution. This is a story of hope, a message to hold on, to not give up. There's no one right answer. Like with any disease, sometimes treatment has to be adjusted and changed to get the right results. Sometimes that means a different kind of treatment. Sometimes it means the same treatment, but for a longer period of time. Regardless, the only wrong answer is to give up and let the disease win. Sarah is alive and thriving today because she never gave up on her dream of recovery. Hi, I'm Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy, for our podcast, Food Junkies. Today, we are talking to Sarah Summers, who is a retired licensed psychotherapist living in Paris. Um, She originally actually uh, came from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, but is now living in Paris. She is the author of Saving Sarah, a Memoir of Food Addiction. And that is her story about living as a food addict for 50 years until she finally found recovery. Like us at Food Junkies, she has devoted her life since her recovery towards helping people with food addiction. She has a blog, which you'll hear more about later, uh, called SavingSarah.org, as well as another blog, Out of My Window, My Life in Paris. She talks about living in Paris, living in the States, and uh, all sorts of other things. Okay, Sarah, let's get a little bit more of your story. For, the, for those of you who may not be sure that you're a food addict, uh, Sarah is uh, somebody who is going to illustrate very well what it's like um, and uh, um, basically has promised to give us the down and dirty aspects of the disease. So why don't you tell us, first of all, a little bit of your story, and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Thank you. Thank you, Vera. Thank you, Chrissy. This is quite an honor to be invited to your podcast, which is very successful. I've listened to a couple of episodes. I, When anybody asks me to tell my story, I always start by saying that I don't think I ever had a healthy relationship with a bite of food. I was a food addict for as long as I can remember, and I didn't know the words. And I didn't know when I was a child, I would just, I knew I was doing something wrong. Every time we finished a meal and kitchen was closed. I was the one sneaking back into the kitchen, always to get the same stuff from the freezer. And 
uh, so I was sneaking. Then I started stealing money from my parent, from my mother's purse, so that I could buy sugar. So I was sneaking and lying. And when I was caught, I lied some more. I got buried at lying. And I was cheating. I was just, I was really, I mean, I, again, I didn't even know about Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know about Narcotics Anonymous. I knew nothing. I just wanted sugar. And I thought it was my parents' fault that I couldn't get it. So I really believe it's something progressive. It just kept getting worse and worse. I was put on a diet. It worked. I'm a good student. It works. But then they give you back your food. <laughs> and so everybody told me how to diet, but nobody told me how to stay thin. So my, my eating, I, and I did call it disordered eating way back then. I just didn't have food addiction. It just got worse and worse and worse. And I put myself in a lot of very dangerous situations. I would drive with open cartons, and I would take my eyes off the road. One time I was at my office, and I heard a knock on the door, and I'd forgotten to put on my emergency brake, and my car had slid out of the driveway into the main street. And I was just lucky it didn't kill anyone. Uh, it was, I, got, uh, I was very embarrassed. So my story is just one thing after another. And even when I found the solution, what I, what I do as the solution today, I resisted it. I wanted, this is what I thought normal people did. I thought normal people ate whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and stayed thin. About, I'm, I'm quite old, I'm 73. About 10 years ago, it occurred to me, that's what I did. I ate whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And normal people did not do that. So that was quite a shock. So it just showed me that everything I had to resist a solution was I'm not going to swear on your podcast, but it was really just rationale. And it took me 26 years to finally be brought so low. She very used the words down and dirty. And it really, I mean, I was taking food out of the trash can that I'd thrown away, thrown, put coffee grounds over. I was doing disgusting things that up until I... You got the podcast people listen to. I would never tell anybody except for another food ad because who would understand that? And I just feel so grateful. I was given sort of a second chance, and it was it was my sister who told me about the solution. And I finally did crawl, literally crawl in. And I, I say I got struck absent. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened... Sarah, before was, you get yeah. to the, the recovery, which we want to hear about, um, I, I let, let's just backtrack and finish off the... Uh, you were going to talk about a bin. Let's just get the... the, the okay. Yeah. Okay, so yes. This might, be, this might be a good place where you can actually do a little bit of your reading um, about uh, um, really what that down and dirty looked like. Okay. So this is actually a reading from your book, Saving Sarah. It is. Yeah. And I'm going to just preface it by saying that, in my mind, the first bite that leads to a binge is actually not a bite in my mouth. It's thoughts in my head. And so I'm prefacing what I'm going to read by saying I had just spent time with my sister, who was thinner than me, prettier than me, and she was getting her PhD at Harvard. 
and I interpreted that to mean she was smarter than me, and I was in quite a snit because I thought I was a better person than her. So I was on a vacation. I just visited with her in Cambridge, and my boyfriend had flown from the Bay Area, and we were on a car trip. I met Peter in downtown Boston, and we left for New Jersey the next morning in his rented car. Peter was tall and handsome, and I loved flirting with him. I thought he was very sexy. We got along well. We enjoyed movies and doing silly things together. He had two young children from a previous marriage, and he'd once taken all three of us to Disneyland. We'd had a wonderful time. As long as I didn't ask too much of him in the way of emotional support, we did well together. Planning this vacation, I had thought a car trip with him would be wonderfully fun. By the time we got together in Boston, though, I was already on the cusp of a huge binge, and the more I held my emotions in, the worse I felt. We took the Massachusetts Turnpike to the New York Thruway, headed to New York City to celebrate my 36th birthday. Somewhere in the Hudson Valley, I wanted food, more specifically, sugar. What overcame me in that moment can only be described as being possessed by obsession. I couldn't think about anything else. I didn't see any of the beautiful landscape that so many artists over the years have come to paint. I have to go to the bathroom, I told Peter, desperate for food and not knowing what else to say to him to get him to stop the car. Sure, he said, but the next stop is about 10 minutes away. Can you make it? I could, and I did, but those 10 minutes felt like 10 hours, one minute after the other, ticking slowly as my cravings became more and more insistent. He pulled into the rest stop, and as he got past, I went to the fast food store, and I bought chips, cookies, and Mars bars, and my favorite Snickers bars. Back in the car, I tried to act normal. I tossed the bag on the back seat and joined Peter in the front as before. I casually reached behind me with my left hand to get the stuff out of the bag, but I couldn't reach it. I leaned over more, and I still couldn't reach it. I felt crazed. The drug was so close, yet so far. I felt like a junkie plotting how to get my fix without letting my boyfriend know how badly I needed it. I was too ashamed by the intensity of my craving to unbuckle my seatbelt and just reach over the seat and grab the bag and bring it up front with me. I don't feel well, I finally said. Pull over. I think I should lie down. It's easier on the back seat. Another lie. Should we stop again and get you some medicine? No, I just need to lie down. I'm sure I'll be okay later. You're the boss. Ha, if he only knew who the real boss was. He pulled to the side of the turnpike, and I climbed into the back. I put the bag of sugar crack in front of me on the floor, and he pulled out into traffic. For the next hour, I ate. I stuffed myself. I vacuumed up every morsel of the food I bought. If it involved opening cellophane wrappers, I did it as quietly as possible, convinced that if I was careful, he wouldn't hear, which was ridiculous, but he didn't say a thing. By the time we arrived in New York City, I was completely drunk. Peter was a recovering alcoholic. Some people think that all addicts understand each other. It's not true. No matter how much I tried to explain that I binged on food, just as he had binged on alcohol, he didn't get it, or maybe he was in denial, too. So far, it hadn't been a problem in our relationship, as I was doing all the things I was supposed to do and was not abusing food. I had instinctively known from the beginning that Peter not only wouldn't understand about food addiction, but also would be judgmental about it. So I just tried to hide it from him. 
My binging episodes were getting closer and closer together, harder to hide, and we'd never spent a long stretch of time together. My attention wasn't on him or what we were doing. It was on food. When was the next meal? Could I get something before that? Could I last until dinner? How could I eat something without him seeing? Peter wasn't dumb. He never said anything. But I'm sure he knew something was very, very wrong and that I was hiding it from him. He also had a black and white way of seeing the world. There was a right way and a wrong way to do things, and he knew the right way. It was hard for him to embrace things he didn't understand and be supportive. In my deluded thinking, I thought that by hiding my food addiction from him, I would save myself from his judgments and opinions. I always talked myself into thinking I could get well and he would never know a thing. And I'm skipping a page or two because Peter drove me to my parents' home in Princeton, New Jersey, and then left me there. My relationship with my mother was terrible, toxic and mean and painful. I still blamed her for everything that was wrong in my life. I don't know what she thought of me, except that she didn't like me very much. Every time I returned to that house in Princeton, I did the same thing. I walked to the front door, I went the 20 steps to the kitchen, and I started opening all the cabinets. Nothing ever changed in the cabinets or in my behavior. I kept looking and searching, hoping for something new to eat. Time after time, visit after visit. Each time, I ended up eating all her nut mix that she kept in the last cabinet I looked in. Each time, I was unsatisfied. Whatever I was looking for wasn't there. My mother didn't much like food. She told me once that she would just as soon eat cardboard as food. It was all the same to her. And as she got older, there was no one to eat with, so she snacked more than eight meals. She loved her nut mix. But a 12-inch jar that I could have scarfed in one sitting would last one or two months for her. When I came to Princeton, the refrigerator was usually three-quarters empty. I took it as a sign that my mother didn't love me, as she never once asked me what I would like when I was visiting, that she would be sure to have it there for me. In my mind, that meant she didn't love me. She was having an anniversary party for herself and my father. I think they'd been married 43 years at that point. The living room dining room where her guests were gathered was arranged like an upside down L. The kitchen was right off the dining room, separated by a swinging door. Whoever had helped my mother prepare for the party had cooked a huge turkey. Everything was laid out buffet style on a table in the dining room. I helped make sure people's glasses were topped off. People filled their plates and socialized in the, light, in the living room. I made conversation with the people I knew. It had been 14 years since I'd left Princeton for California. My mother was now teaching at Rutgers Medical School, and it had been four years since my father's stroke. I knew enough of the past to be social, until the obsession and cravings descended on me. It seemed the time between these bouts of complete obsession was getting shorter and shorter. Under the guise of being super helpful and efficient, I carried all the finished plates sitting on various surfaces into the kitchen, where I proceeded to finish off all the turkey on the plates. Each time I returned to the kitchen, I tore hunks of turkey off the carcass and stuffed myself. I didn't try to be pretty about it. I just needed to do it fast and before anyone could see me. The kitchen was too close to the party for comfort. I was cutting it close. It would be very easy for someone to walk in on me binging. On the one hand, I was terrified of being caught eating. 
On the other, I wasn't scared enough not to do it. I walked around the house looking for more plates to bus, and when I couldn't find any more, I sat in the kitchen and finished off the, all the meat on the carcass. I didn't have it in me to wait until people had left the party. I couldn't pretend to be interested in anyone or in any more discussions. I was completely hostage to my compulsions. I had no enough button. I just binged until the need to keep doing it went away or until I fell asleep. The cravings were coming more and more frequently. My disease was in the fast lane, and so was the denial. Uh, is that it? That's it. That's oh, the part good. I chose. Thank you. So anybody listening, if you can relate to that at all, as I know that I can, and Chrissy, I'm sure you can too, you are a food addict or most likely. So thank you so much. That was a really great uh, illustration of, uh, oh my God, the thinking process and the conniving and all the stuff behind it. Thank you so much. I just related to so much that you just read. I mean, it was really incredible. And I like how now that you've been able to identify that those binges started with emotions, you know, with your sister before the car ride with Peter, it was that not enoughness. And then with your mom, it was that perception of not feeling that love. And every time you finding ways to fill that void and with food that to numb that emotional pain. So can you share a little bit about what your recovery from food addiction looks like and how you got there? I got there by the very long way, <laughs> which I now can look back and smile because people can relate to me, people who have trouble over the years. And I keep saying, so did I, 26 years it took me. And I was persistent because there was nowhere else to go. So I ended up in a 12-step program. And one of the reasons I think a 12-step program works for me is because there's so many other people. I just, I believe that I just started isolating more and more and more. And I also think that this disease, any addiction, it just is a disease, a disease that has a big forgetter. I have a huge forgetter. I can't remember the pain. So I go to meetings and people tell their stories and I remember the pain. So that's a huge part of my recovery. I don't understand why for 26 years when I tried to get abstinent, I couldn't. And on May 24th, 2009, I got abstinent. That was the first gift. The second gift, I have the gift of neutrality around food. I can actually be in a go to a party with their sugar. And if I'm not being stupid, if I'm not hanging out at that table, to be there and not pay any attention. And if miracles exist, that's a miracle. But I mean, honestly, I work hard at it. I do exactly what I'm told. I have a sponsor. I sponsor people. If, if somebody says, should you do that? I ask them why they're saying it. I don't try to answer the question. I really try to be a person that remains teachable around this disease. I think we're just learning more and more and more about these kind of diseases. You know, I and, want, Sarah, you, you were, I interrupted you earlier when you were about to say that you, was it your sister brought you to something you were, you would, it's that aha moment. What was it that made you go, oh, this is an addiction? I don't think I had the word addiction, Vera, but she, when she was getting her PhD in Harvard, the gray sheet uh, meetings had just started out of Overeaters Anonymous. Uh, the people who, two people who became friends of mine actually got fed up with the lack of boundaries and structure. For them, they needed it. 
and my sister wandered into an OA meeting, which turned out to be a gray sheet meeting. Oh. And um, for her, the rest is history. She's a long time abstinent. So I wanted to know what she was doing, and I, she took me to my first meeting in Harvard Square, and I knew. I walked in there, and what I heard was stories like, I just spent a week with my family. It was horrible, but I didn't eat no matter what. And I'd never heard somebody say, I just had a horrible, horrible time, but I didn't binge over it. And I thought, wow. But my sister had it, and I was too competitive with my sister to let myself really get it. So that was why it took me so long. And somewhere along the line, I mean, I was a therapist. I studied. Uh, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also an alcoholic. I knew that I knew addictions existed, and I knew intellectually I probably had a food addiction, but I didn't want to have it, so therefore I didn't have it. And I had to just keep proving to myself that I didn't have it. And every time I tried to prove to myself, the same thing happened. So I, I kind of make a joke out of it today that um, my personal God, my personal higher power, just took pity on me at one point and just said, enough's enough. <laughs> We're going to let this lady get abstinent. And because of that, I'm very, very grateful. I do a lot of, as you said, so kindly in your introduction. I've just really devoted my life now to trying to spread the word um, that it's real, that food addiction is real. I really am a fortunate person. I mean, so many people don't get this, don't understand what's happening to them. And we read it on, that sh that on the Facebook page all the time. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my answer. Yeah, no, that was great. Uh, so I heard you speak to the supports that you have in place now. What does your life look like differently when it comes to foods and behaviors surrounding food than it did before? Well... The first thing is, I only eat three times a day, period. Nothing in between. And I, uh, I, I believe I cannot eat sugar, grains, carbohydrates, but I also have a disease of more. I just always want more. So I use a scale to weigh all my food. And I heard someone say the other day, I can't take credit for it, but I wish I could. She said, my scale is my vaccine. And boy... That's what my scale is for me. It's between me and that first bite. And I take my scale with me everywhere. People laugh at me. People, actually, not so many people laugh at me. The French are very curious because eating is very important to them. But most of the time, I'm more concerned about who's looking at me than people are actually looking at me. So those three meals and weighing them. Also, I call somebody once a day, and I tell them what I'm going to eat, because I discovered, one, I'm supposed to do that, but two, I discovered that I'm much more, I will keep to my commitments if I commit to you, but if I commit to myself, nobody knows, and I can break it. I don't, I'm not trustworthy between me and me. So that is something that really works for me, is to make that commitment to another person, and then have to call them the next day and say, got another day. Sarah, let me ask you, I, 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 boy, you say that so eloquently that you are, you, you can commit to somebody else, but not to yourself because you're not trustworthy. But do you get the criticism of, uh, boy, you're so rigid, like just, you know, can't you just relax? And what do you say to that if you get that? 
Well, you're just making it work. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> My father, who was a very, very smart man, when I was in college, I was trying to convince him why just getting C's and D's was okay. And he, he would say to me, Sarah, you've got to aim higher. And then I would say to him, well, I need more freedom than that. And he, I just, I remember the exact moment he turned to me and he said, Sarah, if you don't have boundaries, you can't be free. You have to have a boundary and then you have freedom. And that's what's happened for me is when I thought, what I thought was freedom, that I could eat whatever, do whatever, I was in hell, I was in prison, but I was given boundaries and my friends all understand it when I say it this way. When I was given boundaries, I have total freedom. I have, I mean, I walk down, a, people say, how can you live in Paris? I walk down a street in Paris and you see all these vegetable and fruit stands out on the street. They're pouring out in the street. And the baguettes and the bagels. I don't see that. I truly don't see it. And there's one on my corner before I get to the vegetable stand. I don't see it. That's what I mean by the gift of neutrality. I walk by, and the French make everything look beautiful. So those windows look like a museum. They don't look like our crap that in the United States. You both are Canadians, so I can say that. I have an abundance. And somebody very early on in my abstinence said to me, I never think about what I can't eat. I think about what I can eat because it's so abundant. And when I write a list of the things that I can eat, it's much longer than the things that I can't eat. And I heard today, I think I, one of your uh, Follow Me movie that I saw on one of your websites, I was listening to a trailer, and one guy said something like, peace tastes better than chocolate. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful. People understand that if you kind of, especially if you say it in a passionate way that I do. I would, there's nothing, no food that I would give, that I can imagine that I would eat, that I would give up the life I have today. Yeah. I love how you frame that, that it's not restriction and it is actually freedom. And so many people that I work with feel the exact same way. It's like you finally know what you can eat and you know how much and you can just be with your plate and consume everything on it without guilt, shame and all the other pieces attached to it. So can I ask you if you've experienced some struggles and some barriers to recovery and how you've managed to overcome those things? While, while in recovery? Yeah. I think my barriers are things in my personality. I mean, a lot of, you know, they, the joke is that there's only one thing you have to change to, in order to stay absent, everything. You know, and, and I, it was told to me pretty clearly so that I got it right away that if I don't want to go back to doing what I did, I had to change all my behaviors and my ways of thinking. And I, by the time those 26 years were over, I believed it, and I didn't ever want to go back. But there are some core issues that I really get me in trouble. I mean, I talk a lot. I can get bossy. I mean, I head up committees. I I'm, I'm, do things, and if I'm tired, I can piss people off. And I, I forget that... People are just like me. They're very sensitive. You know, addicts are incredibly sensitive. And I forget, and I say something without thinking, 
and they think I don't like them. They're so upset. They don't want anything to do with me. And I just want to kick myself. So I want to do more than kick myself, except what can I do? I can say, I'm sorry. I really didn't mean it. And I darn well better learn from it because I need all those people. So I'd say that I've had some moments where I've been told things I've done that I I didn't quite want the earth to open up. You know, I didn't quite feel the shame I used to feel, but I got pretty close. I kept thinking, Sarah, this is not you. So it's it's all personality and just those old behaviors of push people away. I was a porcupine. You know, I sent out quills, and I'm still sending out a few. Can you speak a little bit to why you think food addiction is viewed so differently than other addictions? I'm not sure I could speak eloquently about it. My own opinion is that people think food is namby-pamby. How can can anybody equate sugar? And yet, if you do any reading, you, you read that sugar is... A lot of experts say it's harder to get off than heroin. So I think the majority of people, I mean, in the United States, I think one in every third person now is is considered obese. Those are the people we want to convince, and they don't want to be convinced. I think experts are really hard to deal with. I mean, my mother would would go around the country and talk about health policy and health economics, and all these doctors would come in and they'd talk about good eating and everything, and then you'd see them, you know, in a cafeteria eating grease and more grease and more grease or sneaking out and smoking a cigarette. So the experts don't want to hear. I mean, I don't know the real reason, and I do think that people are coming around with all these summits that I've been aware of. You identified a little earlier on um, that you are also an alcoholic. Um, what would you say, just out of curiosity, uh, what would you say is your primary addiction, and do you see them as fundamentally the same or different? Like, what's your take on that? Because you have a, a history of another addiction as well. Yeah. I think of myself first as a food addict, and then I think of myself as an alcoholic. I started drinking uh, mostly when I started um, trying to eliminate sugar and grains from my life. And guess what the main ingredients of alcohol are? And so then I started drinking more and more and more. And I don't know where I crossed the line, but at some point I crossed the line. I was older than a lot of people. I often call myself a -a whack-a-mole addict, you know, because I think I give me enough rope and I can pretty much misdo everything. So... But I, I, I think they're, they're very similar, but I don't think alcoholics understand food addicts at all for the same reason that it's hard to get the word out. Alcoholics are, at least in the beginning stages, you know, they're really fun and they're out there. We turn all our anger inside. We hide under the covers, under the pillows. We get depressed much faster. So they don't understand, and yet... When my alcoholic women friends particularly say, you know, I have trouble with food, I tell them, well, guess what? It's the same ingredients. So I'm working on all my friends. <laughs> is that, is that, a, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, what, the thing that struck me about what you said is that alcoholics don't get food addiction. I, I think it's because my sense about this is that it's most likely because they're in the food and you don't see it when you're in it. Right, and, uh, exactly. 
you know, most likely uh, they're, I think, at a higher risk of food addiction because of the sugar content, you know. And I see it all the time because I work in addictions. When the person gets off of their alcohol, they're snarking down the, the, the food in the way that they never did before or the way that they used to many years yep, ago. Yep. That's, yeah. and, and you read it in the big book. Bill and, W. said, yeah. take advantage of the sugar. <laughs> and it's only when they try to quit the sugar that they go, oh, my God, this is harder. Yeah. But it's a long time to, quit, to get to that place of wanting to quit the sugar. It really is. It yeah. really is. So can you speak a little about how you think friends, family can support the food addict in their life and what was very helpful in your family? Obviously, you had your sister in a program, so that was very supportive. And you have friends in Alcoholics Anonymous as well. But for those of us that have, you know, the normie friends, what would you give as a word of advice with your experience as to how those friends and families can support the food addict in their life? I think it's very hard for them to understand. And I often say to my friends who ask me, I will say a little bit and then I'll say, I really hope you don't understand what I'm saying, because if you understand, you're probably an addict. Uh And they get it, that they probably won't understand. And I I also try to be humorous. Like when I go out to a meal with a whole lot of people, especially when I was working, I would bring out my scale, somebody might look, and I would just say, okay, everybody's got one minute to ask me all the questions you want to ask, (laughs) and then you got to shut up because I want to enjoy my meal. <laughs> and they laugh and they respect it. I think it's the people who accidentally feel that they have to explain themselves and they do it over and over and they bring all the attention to themselves, which is the last thing they want. And so I would say if you're in a program like I am, in a 12-step program, before you do anything with friends, talk to your sponsor and come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. In fact, I probably would say that to anybody. I said it as a therapist. If it feels hard, come up with a plan. And I once was flying to see my mother, who was not supportive at all, and I was really scared. And my sponsor said, don't worry, Sarah. Take your credit card because there's God and lettuce in New Jersey also. <laughs> okay, Sarah, now let's get to your book because that's the whole purpose of, uh, of your being here is to let people know about this wonderful memoir, Saving Sarah. How did you get a publisher interested, and uh, how did that process go? Because I can tell you, when I went to my publisher, they just kept saying, this is a niche area, We can't, and I had a hell of a time getting a publisher. So how did you get there, and uh, tell us a little bit about the story of how that all happened. A lot of it was pure luck. I, uh, I started writing it because I was, I had, uh, I was in a writing workshop in Paris, and an agent had come. And that was part of the workshop. If you pay a little bit extra, you could meet with an agent. So I thought, what a lark. This is a one-time thing only. So I talked with her. And in order to talk with her, I had to give her 15 pages before I went. And first thing she said to me is, do you think you can finish this? And I said, why? And she said, I think you should finish this. I think this book is needed. People always hear about eating disorders and food addiction from doctors and experts, and and a lot of times the people don't have it. You need to write it from your point of view. Well, I just thought, wow, I had no idea how hard it was to write a book. So 
that got me started, and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I was really on a on a roll, and I so I said in December, shall I send it to you? And she said, no, I'm going to put you in touch with a coach and an editor, and I want you to work with her. Well, it turned out that that person uh, was, owned um, a, a women's um, publishing called uh, She Writes Press, and it's a hybrid. So. I paid an initial amount. Once I decided, uh, I loved her. She every other week she worked with me. I, I have an, I'm a natural storyteller, but I didn't know the craft of writing. So she really had to work with me. So she finally asked me, "We'd like to publish your book. Would you like it to be published?" And and I said yes because I went through some mountains and valleys writing it, and so. I pay an initial amount, and then they turn into a traditional publisher. They do all the work after that. And I had the money, and what else was I going to do with my money? This is where I want to put my money and my heart, is, is to get something out. And it's working. I mean, people write me. I have this Instagram account on my blog. People thank me. I've taken people to meetings that I met on my Instagram account. And so people... You, you said something about how your publisher wanted you to focus more on the down and dirty and less on the recovery piece. So what's your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, she's not an addict of any kind, maybe a workaholic, but she really thinks, and maybe she's right, I don't know, that people get fascinated by the before. They love, the, they love hearing the struggles of people. And they're not so interested when everything's going okay. So I went, when she told me that, I thought, darn. And I went back and I started watching old movies, Days of Wine and Roses, and Susan Hayward was in a couple of ones, and they always stop right when the person puts down the bottle. She was right. So from an artistry point of view, she was right. But if you ask me if I'm going to do anything next, if I do something next, I actually want to pull together about 25 stories of people and talk about their recovery, both both what it was like and what their recovery's like, because I think I'd have 25 different stories. And if people don't hear that, then they're going to stick with the words rigid. It's rigid what she does. They're going to stick with, oh, my God, it's too hard for me. How do you know if it's too hard for you, if you unless you try it? And anyway, hard is not a four-letter word. I keep telling people that. So that would be my next thing. But from an artistry point of view, she was right. But we've now got books printed, Vera. I think it's easier the second time around. You can pretty you can call more of what you want to do once you get a book printed. At least that's what my agent told me. Yeah, you know, I have to say that uh, you know I get a lot of complaints on my book about the cover. And when I got the second edition, I thought, well, that's a great chance now that I can put a good cover on, like blueberries or something like that. And they were still like, nah, people want the problem. Just like you said, they want the gory stuff. They don't want to see the solution because I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, that's our next step. We have to make a recovery be as intriguing as... And it is. When you're in it, it's like we almost need to hear that hope because recovery can be so long and we need to constantly be motivated to stay in it and stick with it. So I would definitely be interested in reading a book <laughs> on that topic yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, I she, did. She, oh, go ahead. She did let me add an epilogue, you know, which was a very long epilogue. And so. Right on, good. so yeah, so, good for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so where can our listeners find you? I did hear you mention Instagram. I follow you on Instagram, but where would be the best place for our listeners to follow you? Well, my Instagram account is good place, saving Sarah the book, all one word. And I have a blog and I write once a month on it. It took me a while to figure out what I could do. And it is www. Sarah, without an H, S-A-R-A hyphen, I guess it's www.saving hyphen Sarah.org. And that'll take you to my blog. And that has also a resource page, which has Vera's book on it. So I, I try to put as much there so that people aren't just reading an opinion of mine, but they're also getting a lot, they have accessible, if they want it, a lot more information I have a Facebook page, but pretty much the Instagram and the blog goes automatically to the Facebook page. But somebody, some people just love Facebook and nothing else. So that's Saving Sarah, the book also. So Great. Great. So we're going to ask you our signature question. And that is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction and recovery, what would that be? I actually thought about that because I heard you ask people on the on the ones I listened to, you know, and my, my first knee-jerk response was that I would want to say to little Sarah, you're enough, you're, you're loved, you're enough, whatever you are, whatever you do, you're enough, because I, I was always told I was not enough, and I think that as a child, being told you're not enough, that just grew that big hole in my soul and started filling it with everything that I could. There wasn't any information about food addiction when I was a little girl. If I was a little girl right now, and I was truly a little food addict, I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm just going to, you say white, I'm going to say black. So I, I really think that it's that little children need to be loved no matter who they are, what they are. If you feel, I was thinking about writing a book about, tw you know, two friends, and one of them's loved, and one of them is not. And the one that's not ends up in a cult, trying to find love with weird people, and the other one goes right into something she loves, like chemistry or art or something, because she ha doesn't have to keep looking for love. Not having love in your life from your parents or your friends or the teachers, it's it's very damaging, and it can lead you. I mean, I went to some very strange places, and sometimes I think I'm lucky to be alive. Okay. Sarah, thank you so much for your, your, your sharing today. I just want to ask you, do you have an audible version of your book? Um, Not book? yet. Oh, Not you yet. Because it was really nice hearing you read. So you, you have a really, really, uh, the, the prose is wonderful to listen to. And I, I can just, just that little eight minute vignette made me think, oh, I'd love to hear that. I read your book, but I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I'm surprised. No, you sent me a, you sent me a PDF. I sent you a digital why. copy, yeah. yeah. I'm wondering, because normally I listen on Audible. So that, that should be your next project. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for coming. Um, oh. Thank you so much. This was yeah. fun. I was very nervous. This was fun. And no, it was great. <laughs> and I actually really enjoyed the music in the background. It was kind of like a story, especially during your reading. It was nice. <laughs> I really planned it all along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.